0: All right. If you're hoping for somebody else, I'm sorry to disappoint you. So it's me again. But all right, I am excited. We get to continue in our service. We get to open up God's word. We've been in this series through the Great Book of John that's entitled "Come and See," and it's this invitation, not only from John but ultimately from God, to come and to see and to understand, like who is Jesus and what is the impact that He can have in your life and in my life and in the lives of like the kids that we had up here. Like, how does Jesus literally transform everything? And the reason we even can explore this and even are spending time doing this is because the tomb is empty. We are resurrection people. And so in this Eastertide season, again, like he is risen. Let's remember that. Let's celebrate that. And so John, where we are in the, this particular book, is we're going to be at the end of John chapter 5. And so I would encourage you to go to John 5 or look at verses 30 to 47. If you brought a Bible, you can turn there. As always, too, you can go to cplife.church. You'll see a card as you swipe over that says message notes. The text will be there, space to take notes. What's up on the slides this morning will be there as well. And so I'm going to go ahead and read this. And just to set the context a bit, we are at a spot. There's kind of this, these teachings, the discourse of Jesus. He's been in a spot where people are suddenly having to like confront like. He's making claims to be God himself, one with the Father, the Son of God, the Messiah. And already people are in objection to that. We looked at that last week as Pastor Eric preached. All right. So there's like the scene has been set. There's tension now. It went from changing water to wine, everybody's happy at the party and the wine's flowing, to suddenly like people are starting to turn on Jesus because he's made some audacious claims. So we want to look at this together this morning and rightly understand hey, who is he? How does it change your life and my life? How can we actually have confidence in the claims of Jesus? And so let me read this. I'm going to tell you just out of the gate. It's going to seem kind of wordy and abstract, and so we'll try and distill this this down. But just so we have it in its fullness, I'll read these verses, and then we'll make our way back through them. So John chapter 5, beginning in verse 30, it says this. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives, me, uh, gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved." John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Verse 36. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time. You haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from my people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. So how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? This is God's word for us today. We'll pray that... The Spirit illuminates our minds, our hearts, our, our thinking, so we can understand what is happening here. There's a theologian. We'll start th- this way. There's a theologian. Um, he died, I believe, in 1968, by the name of Karl Bart. And Bart wrote numerous works of theology. He's well known for his work on the epistle to the Romans. Um, he also, his life's work, what he set out to do, and this is, is, is crazy to me, he set out to write this massive work of theology. In fact, I'll, I'll put it up on, on the screen here. It was called Church Dogmatics. So it's just a riveting title right out of the gate. I'm sure you're all going to want to go home and order it, but it literally just works through all, like, through his mind, he just sat down and wrote volume after volume after volume. In fact, in 1968, when he passed away, there were still some that was left unfinished, but there were 12 published volumes. Get this, over 6 million words. So that time, like you're in college, like you got to write a 5,000 word essay and you're just freaking out, you know, it's like 6 million words. Most of us won't read 6 million words, let alone write them, right? And so here's this guy, renowned theologian, just brilliant. I'm not advocating everything that he taught, but I'm just saying like he had a he had a very astute theological mind. And there's a story that has become famous about his life. He was near, nearing the end of his life. A few years before he passed, he traveled to the States. He was a Swedish um, uh, theologian. He traveled, and he was at the University of Chicago in 19, I believe it was 1962. And he's there and there's this kind of this, he's been teaching, and there's people gathering, so sort of this kind of conference of sorts, and he's laying out his theology and his belief and giving insight into the scriptures, and at the end, there's a Q and A, all right? And so there's students that are, are gathered there, people from the community, and there's a student report that it, the story goes, asked him, said, hey, Dr. Bart, um, I have a question for you. You've written church dogmatics, you've written volume upon volume upon volume, millions and millions of words, um, can you distill your theology into one sentence? And he looked at the, the student. I don't know if the student was trying to stump him or what, you know, like some of those people that just like the microphone, right? So I don't know if that was what was happening. But Dr. Bart looked at him, very kind, very compassionate, and said, crazy enough, the guy who'd written six million words, all right, said, yes, I, I believe I can. It's, it's very simple, in fact, I, I learned the answer to that on my mother's knee as she taught me the words, the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible, tells me so. Mic drop, student sits down, right? Like, that's, that was his response. So the man who wrote millions and millions of words, the man who had just theological understanding, he's reading and writing and doing all of this, when asked to distill it all down, has this beautiful, simple response. Jesus loves me, this I know. Do you know the love of Christ? That's what this text is asking us to consider. And the way we have confidence in that, because we will waver, we will doubt, is the next part, the next line in that song, for the Bible tells me so. This text before us helps us understand how did Jesus view the Bible? Because if we're gonna be followers of Jesus and even culturally out there, if you're maybe you're a skeptic, you're not sure what you believe, Jesus is revered and I think it would be helpful for us to know, well, how did he think of the Bible? Is it authoritative? Is it the word of God? Is it opinions of man? Like what in the world is it? And I think as we wrestle through this, as we look at this text, that can seem sort of abstract, but if we just focus in, it's asking us to consider, it's helping us to consider, like, do you and I have that sort of simple confidence? Do you know Jesus loves me? This I know. How? For the Bible tells me so. You may not have read church dogmatics. You may not have any interest in that. But what is distilled down in the line of that song that he learned from his own mother Singing it to him and him singing with her has profound implications for your life and my life. And so where this starts out then, we're going to look at is one of the things John is doing throughout the book is there's these themes, almost courtroom themes. Like sometimes, in fact, what we're finding here is Jesus really is put on trial. He has made claims about who he is. Some people are really upset. They don't know what to do with that. And so what we have in verses 30 to 31, the first section we're just going to look at quickly is that really there's a trial that's taking place. And what's so interesting is verse 30 speaks of Jesus as the judge. The verses that preceded it that we looked last week in chapter 5 talk about his authority, his control, that he's the judge, ruler. And yet now I would say there's this movement sort of from judge to defendant. It's as if Jesus now is on trial. And what's getting introduced here in chapter 5 is no different than what's going to play out later in the book when Jesus actually is literally put on trial and is convicted and is put to death. Like, but here we get this sort of foreshadowing. It's looking ahead and Jesus is put on trial. And his response to those that are making accusations, those that don't believe, and he says these words, he says, well, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true, he says in verse 31. And what he says there, that's, that's true about how courtrooms play out today. Somebody accuses you of something, you know, they're trying to prosecute you, you're trying to defend yourself. And if you just, like, I swear up and down, I didn't do it, it wasn't me that robbed the 7 Eleven, like, whatever it happened to be, right? Like, just because you said it doesn't make it true. And so Jesus is like, hey, I get that, right? If I testify about myself, my testimony, like, no one's gonna buy that. That's not how this works. So he's like, okay, we wanna play this courtroom thing, we wanna do that. Like, let me bring before you then, I've got testimony, I've got witnesses that will corroborate, that will confirm, like, who I actually am. And so that's what I wanna look at. And we'll look at the first two very quickly, and then the third one really is about the scriptures, for the Bible tells me so. Like, how do we have confidence? That how are we to even think about this book or that app on your phone or whatever, right? What are, how are we to think about these things? And so there are these testimonies then there are witnesses that are called for. So let's look at that together for just a moment. And so really, there's, there's three that we see here. There's a personal witness or personal testimony. There's evidential. There's evidence-based testimony. And then there's scriptural. There's, there's the word of God testimony. And so personal, he, he references, he says, you sent messengers to John and he testified to the truth. He says, hey, you guys have heard John the Baptist." You guys all, he's saying to this crowd of people, he's like, you guys all loved him, you revered him, you went out in the wilderness to see him, right? Well, what was he doing? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like, that guy talked about me. That guy said, you know, he must increase and I must decrease. Jesus is like, go talk to him, right? Like, he bore witness, his testimony. And so one of the things that we have to embrace in this is, for one, I think it should create in us a posture of worship and celebration, Because none of us are here this morning as a follower of Christ because we independently, on our own, with no help from anybody, figured it out. I'm guessing if I sat down with every one of you, if you're a follower of Christ, you don't have a testimony that was like, I grew up out in the woods, away from anybody. I didn't have any parents. I was raised by wolves, right? Like whatever it was. And the voice from on high spoke and told me about Jesus, and I became a Christian. The truth of the matter is somebody told you. Somebody told me. It might have been a mom, a dad, a Sunday school teacher, a friend, a youth worker, somebody at VBS. I don't know what it was, but somebody told you. And so, for one, this is just a quick reminder, and I don't think this is the main point of this passage, but it is a good reminder, the personal nature. God works through you and me. We celebrate that. Maybe your story, even on a Mother's Day, is to think maybe your mom is the one who told you about Jesus. Like Praise God for that, whoever it was. Somebody told somebody who told somebody, and eventually that word got to you. And yet, it's not meant to terminate, right? It's not meant to be like, cool, you just keep that for yourself. The description of John is that he's this radiant light. And so our calling then as the church is also in this, is to bear witness, to give testimony to Jesus through our words, through our actions. And when it says John is this radiant light, think of it, the moon, right? The moon, it, it's derivative light. It's, it's reflective. Like you and I are not the source of light. We'll get to John chapter nine and Jesus is gonna let us know like he's the light of the world. He's the source, but we are called to reflect him. And so even this is just a reminder. There's this personal testimony. There's this personal witness and our calling and our invitation. Let's celebrate that somebody bore witness to you and let's do that in turn. It's so what we talk about Is a church pointing our community to Jesus. And so are you that radiant light? And if you're like, man, there's still a lot of darkness in me. I'm not perfect. Yeah, nobody is except for Jesus. He's the source of light. that never gets darkened. And so just trust him, but we get to be a reflection. And then he moves on, and I'd say there's this evidence, this evidential witness. He says, these very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says, you can get personal testimony from people like John, but also just look at what I'm doing. I'm healing people. I'm turning water into wine. Like John, in fact, tells us towards the end of this book that we thought Karl Barth's work of theology was massive. John says, if I were to write down, if I were to pen, if I were to record all that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to, you know, to, to like hold all of that. So all the time, Jesus is doing one thing after another. He's bringing healing. He's, he's bringing clarity. He's ministering to people. We'll see kind of some of the highlights of his ministry through this great book of John. And so just a very practical question is, have you and I, particularly if you're somebody that's skeptical, have you, have you wrestled with it? The big thing where all of this is leading, the work, is what we celebrated on Easter a few weeks ago, is the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, then none of this matters. Like, it was cute to have the kids up here and stuff, but the resurrection didn't happen. This is all a farce, man. None of this even matters. Like, we should all just be home. But if the tomb is empty, then it changes everything. And so, wrestle with that. Jesus is saying, like, hey, and that's ultimately where the story is going. Look at my works. Look at my miracles. And the Greatest miracle, the greatest witness, the greatest thing that's ever going to happen is the resurrection. Now, the last thing, and this is where we'll kind of camp out for a few moments together, is the scriptures. How did Jesus view the scriptures? Is it just a nice little children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so? Or does it change everything? And Jesus says these words, the father who sent me has himself testified about me. That God himself has given his words through the scriptures to tell a particular story. And Jesus makes references throughout this whole section. But let me call your attention to two in particular. In John 5, down in verse 39, it says this. He's talking to a group of people. He says, you pour over the scriptures. It's the theologians of the day. It's those that were the they were the teachers of the law. They were the experts. They were leading the Bible studies. They were teaching in the seminaries. Like that sort of thing. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But look at this phrase, and yet they testify about me. Big idea here. The storyline of the scriptures, the big E on the eye chart is it's all about Jesus. Do not miss that a few verses later in verse 46, he says, for if you believed Moses, now Moses was revered for the Jewish people. He was their hero, all right? That was the the one who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's like, if you believe Moses, which you all do, you would believe me because guess what, guys? He wrote about me. That's what Jesus is communicating. What did Jesus view about the Bible? He viewed that it's one continuous story. And so I told you a moment ago, as we had the families up here, they were given the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is a slightly different cover version than the one that they received. I've said this every time we do a child dedication. I will continue to say this. You want to understand the storyline of the Bible? I do not get a commission for this, all right? Um, Please go and get yourself a copy of this. Let me read to you how this starts. Here are these wonderful words that drive home the point of what is happening here in John chapter 5. What is the point of the Bible? What is the story that it's telling? So are we ready for children's story time? All right, here we go, because it's beautiful and it's profound it'll be far better than anything I will say, so let me read this. It begins, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like to help us know him and to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too. He wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy. And the Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes even on purpose. They get afraid and they run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. What we have the gift of whether you pick it up often or not whether you're confused by just big picture like what this it is a beautiful picture it is a letter written by God it is expressing the love that he has for you for humanity what he is doing to get us back there might be a lot of secondary questions we can ask the bible there's lots of things we can debate some things that we'll put in a, kind of an open hand like well we'll agree to disagree but at the end of the day the storyline it is about Jesus. It is not about heroes of the Bible because there are no heroes other than Jesus, right? People are like, oh, David, really? Have you, have you read his resume? Like what, what he did, adultery, murder, like he doesn't quite fit it. What about Paul? He's murdering Christians. What about Peter? He abandons Jesus, right? I mean, time and time and time again, everyone, they're like, oh, that guys he's gonna be it. Like, nope, uh, he failed. Every single person in the Bible, but Jesus. And the whole thing is about him. So what happens here? And this is what Jesus does. It's what Jesus only can do. He is on trial. He's like, okay, let me talk about the personal witness. Let me talk about the evidence, the works, and let me talk about the Bible. And then what Jesus does, he's like, okay, guys, I'm going to turn the tables on you. Now, this doesn't happen in our modern day sort of courtroom setting. Somebody gets brought to trial. If it turns out, maybe the case gets thrown out and somebody else can be brought to trial later on. But in a Jewish setting, the way a courtroom would go is Jesus would have every right to actually prove his point and say, okay, I was on trial. That's how this thing started. But now the tables have turned. Things have been switched, flipped, and now you're on trial. And it's not just the people a couple thousand years ago. I'm on trial. You're on trial. It's asking us to consider Do we actually understand the story? Do we actually understand? And what Jesus calls out, I'll put it before you this way, that he talks about posture and he talks about purpose. The posture that not only the people back then had, but that's present in my heart, it's in your heart, it's in your neighbors, your coworkers. It's just present in humanity. And then how are we to understand like the purpose of it all again? And so if we drop down to verses 41 to, to 47, we hear these particular words. Jesus says, I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. So the gloves are off at this point. I mean, he has turned the tables. He's putting, uh, he's gone on the offensive. He's prosecuting them. He's like, hey, you actually have no love for God within you. And this is, he's talking to religious leaders, the religious elite of his day. I have come in my father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. He's saying there has been countless people that have shown up and said that they were the Messiah, they were the Savior, and you guys flocked out to him. You you believe that. You have no trouble believing certain people, but for whatever reason, they wouldn't believe Jesus. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your Your accuser actually is Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about Me, but if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? And so this raises a question, and it's an age-old question. Like, it's a back-in-the-garden sort of question. Is this, are you, how do you view it? What's your posture? Are you over the word of God, or are you under the word of God? Are you superior to the word of God, or are you submitted to the word of God? Now, I think the Sunday school kind of church answer we know is, oh, of course I'm submitted to the word of God. But do we really submit to what he says here? Like if Jesus is Lord and King, are we just sort of taking what we like and disregarding other things? That is absolutely present, not just out in the world, but in the church. Do we believe what Jesus has to say about our, about our money, about our bodies, about our relationships, about how we spend our time, about how we do our work? What are we actually paying attention to, or are we making it about us? What Jesus is calling out here at the end of John chapter 5 is a disposition of the human heart that says, I want the glory. We are glory thieves. We are seeking to actively rob God of his glory. Now, we might not think of that. It's not pleasant to think about. But ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve said, I want to be God, they take the fruit, everything begins to unravel, that story continues to play out. Rather than submitting to the word of God, they're like, we're going to be over God's word. And what does it lead to? Nothing but pain and misery and suffering. So are you over or are you under the word of God? Now, when we look at this, the way this plays out, I'll give you one example, is in our present day, and this will get a little philosophical maybe for, for a moment, All right. so one of the ways this plays out is it's a popular thing to say, hey, you believe this is the word of God? You believe it's God's love story, or love letter toward you? You believe this is the authority? That's great. That's your perspective, and I've got my perspective, and my neighbor has his perspective. And that that's fine. Like we should just embrace that sort of this relative view of things. And perhaps you've heard this story. Let's talk about an elephant for a moment, all right? I don't know if you've heard this illustration before. It is very popular. You've probably ran across it at some point or a version of this. The story is told this way, to kind of emphasize this point. That, hey, we all have our own perspective. It's the story of the elephant and the three blind men. So imagine there's this giant elephant that decides that I'll just stand still while three blind men walk up. And one of the blind men grabs a hold of the trunk of the elephant and begins to describe. An elephant, it is, it is like a garden hose, right? And begins to say, because that's his reality. I've gra- grabbed hold of the trunk. And another blind man says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Because he's grabbed one of the legs. He's tried to wrap his arms around the, the mighty leg of the elephant. He says, it's like a sturdy oak. It is like the trunk of a sturdy oak tree. That's what the elephant is like. And the third blind man is like, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Like the, the, the elephant, he's, he's feeling the side of it. It's like this hard sheet of plywood or the side of a house. That's what an elephant is like. And people stand back and say, "See? None of them were wrong. They all had their perspective. This is the way this sort of plays out in our culture today is to sort of believe, like, hey, we all have a version of the truth." But if we stop for just a moment, the person who's offering this up, all right, it's actually a self-defeating argument, because at the end of the day, there is a person who's saying I actually objectively see the whole elephant. So I can appreciate oh, that's cute that he thinks the trunk is like a hose and he thinks that you know the, the side is like plywood or the leg is like the trunk of, of, a, of a tree. That person is making an absolute truth claim. I see the big picture. And so for the Christian, we do not shy away and from this is the authority of God. But everyone is making declarative, authoritative, like absolute truth claims. Do I absolutely believe this? Or do I believe my thoughts, my feelings, my emotion, my thinking? Everybody's trusting in something. It's just what are you going to trust in? And so in these moments where we tend to think like, oh, I know better than God, Jesus out of love says, you're called to be under the word of God. You can go pursue all those other things. And you can think that you're open-minded and you're tolerant and you're doing that. But at the end of the day, you're making an absolute claim. You're claiming to see all of it. And only God can do that. And I'm not saying it's always easy to trust him, but I'm in with the guy who would give us his son, whose son would bleed out for the salvation of us all over my thoughts and my opinions. I mean, how many of your thoughts and opinions and feelings and emotions have changed over the course of your life? How about in the last two days, right? Like they're fleeting, they change all the time. I need this, this will bring life. And now, What's fascinating and counterintuitive, if we desire to have a relationship with God, I'm going to assume for a moment that you do, that your neighbors do, that people want a relationship with God. If we ask this question, do you? The answer is yes. You and I need an authoritative word from God. We need a God who is fully in charge in order to have a relationship. You and I desperately need a God who can confront you and me and contradict you. If you think for a moment that it's a great relationship because the person that you're in a relationship with never, never combats, goes combative, never actually calls you out, never says anything, that's not a relationship. If you looked at me in my relationship with my wife and you're like, oh, Heather just does everything that Jamie wants, never pushes back, never says anything, that's not a good relationship. I might be like, well, that, would, that sounds amazing. For about two minutes, it's not a relationship. Why would it be the same then with God? Us putting ourselves in the spot of like, we know best. No, you and I need the authority of God. Stephen Um put it this way in his, in his work on this. He says, The Bible has to be able to contradict the reader, and God has to be able to contradict our views. If He can't do that, we're not in a real relationship with Him. And so Jesus confronts the posture. And I wish I could say it was just the people a couple thousand years ago, but it's in my heart and it's in your heart. I think I know best. And what God in his love is doing is telling us, hey, there's a true story. There's a story, yes, of authority, but it's a story of love. And so let me ask you this, as we look back through verses 37 to 40, if you just jump up for just a moment here, it tells us, as Jesus is speaking, he says, the Father has sent me, has testified about me. You've not heard his voice at any time. You haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. And now look at this, verse 39. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. This is a group of people, it's good to pour over the scriptures. I wanna encourage you to do that. I hope we become that more and more as a church family and community, that we'd be known for study of the scriptures. But they thought it was their study that was earning them the affection of God. So as we talk and we kind of conclude with this, let me ask you this question. Is the Bible primarily, is it about God or is it from God? They were studying it, believing it was about God. we got to know more facts. we got to do this. And in doing that, thinking that they could earn the affection of God, the relationship that they desired. But it's not true. It's not primarily, though it does tell us a lot about God, Is not primarily, as I read to you out of the Jesus Storybook Bible a few moments ago, it's not primarily about God, it is from God. It's not a human work about God, about how to get to God, but rather it is a book from God, about God, about his pursuit of humanity. That's what the story is about. And that changes everything when we realize that it is his love letter toward us. Now, I enjoy reading biographies. Biographies, though, are about somebody. Like, I read this one recently um, about the author and theologian uh, Eugene Peterson, who passed away a few years ago. An amazing, amazing book, right? And I'm finding this, that I'm kind of a slow learner, right? I'm finding that, oh, biographies, like, I get towards the end. They're always sad at the end. They all die in the end, right? Like, apparently, that's just the way it goes. And I was nearing the end of this book, and I literally actually took a couple days because I was just like, I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm ready for Eugene to die, right? Um, and so I had this moment, and everybody was gone one day, and I read the concluding chapters. And I, I'll just admit it, I had a, f- a full-on sort of ugly cry there. I don't know what happened. I was just like, whoa. Um, now, I was moved by that book. It was amazing. I, I learned a lot. I was encouraged. But I tell you what, I, I don't have a relationship with Eugene, right? It was a book about him. How much more would I treasure if I had actually known him and he had sent me a letter encouraging me, Jamie, here's what I see in your life. Here's, I, 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 you know, I care for you. I love you. I respect you. Here's what I see. Here's areas of growth. Here. Like, what if I had that? Not just a book about this man, but a letter from this man. The book is amazing, but I would treasure that. Folks, friends, that's what we have. It's not a book about God. It is a letter from God who's in relationship with you. He desires to be relationship with you. He's letting you know how the world best works, what it looks like to be part of his kingdom. It's a gift. And so often we miss it thinking, I got to pour over the scriptures. I got to do this to earn. He's like, the story's not about earning. The story's about receiving God's grace. It's a story of Jesus through and through. And so conclude this way. Here's the calling then. I do think that there's a calling for us to search the scriptures. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that. But then allow the scriptures to search you. Holy Spirit, what do you have for me in here? It's not just to win Bible trivia. So would you submit? And then ultimately I'd say, you submit yourself to it, would you see? Would we have our eyes open to see that it's a story about Jesus? that it's about his grace, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give you the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what we need. Can we have that simple confidence, Jesus loves me, this I know. If you doubt that, here, for the Bible tells me so. This is the authoritative word of God. I need this anchor. I can't trust my emotions. I can't trust my own thinking. I can't trust the, the latest trendy book or podcast, as helpful as they might be. This is what I need. And Jesus believed this was the word of God. And he was the word made flesh. It came and dwelt among us. So I started with a story about Karl Barth. I'll end with one more about this man. In penning his six million plus words in his massive theological work, one of the things that he had was a duplicate copy of this work of the, the crucifixion by a man, an artist named Grunewald. And Here's a, a picture of it. This is made to be actually on an altar in a, in a um, church or museum somewhere, but he had this kind of depiction of it. And there above his desk, that hung. And every day as he would write and he would work, that would be there. Now, his favorite part of it, though, as he looked at that, and I'll zoom in on it, was this. That there to the side of Jesus, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, this is John the Baptist. And with his exceedingly long sort of bony finger, what is he doing there? He's pointing. And for Bart, as he wrote work after theology after theology, like all of this, and word after word, and paragraph after paragraph, and ultimately book after book, it was this reminder Don't miss Jesus. It was there pointing. That's what I need. That's what the story is about. And so it might result in massive theological works or it might be as simple as a child's song. Don't miss that. It's telling a story that God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting eternal life. Like, we get to be part of the kingdom. Some of these truths that maybe we've heard a hundred times before, like, would they sink in in new and fresh ways? Pointing to Jesus in everything that we do. This is our great joy. We get to participate in this, and we get to be reminded of it. We need this. So don't spend time in it to earn the affection of God. That's impossible but spend time in it to encounter the authority of God that reminds you of who you are in him. And that those of you that are in Christ God right now, because of the work of Jesus sees you as spotless, as pure, regardless of anything you've ever done or will do, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the story that this is telling. And so we're gonna celebrate together through communion. The worship team's gonna come back up. I wanna give you a moment just to respond. And so you might be doing this as we sing together. Maybe you just need to take some time to quietly pray, reflect, but ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in repentance and to rest in the finished work of Jesus, that this is the story that we all need. And then we're going to rejoice together. And so if you're a follower of Christ, while the song is being sung, come to either side of the stage, get the element, bring it back, and we'll participate together. Those of you that are gathered with us at home, you can gather elements there in your home, and we can partake. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to participate in this meal together as we after we sing this song. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the story of the scriptures. It's telling a story of your love, of your pursuit of us, of those that deserve separation, who deserve death. And yet, Jesus, you stepped in and you died in our place. You are a substitute. We thank you for this meal. I pray that it would nourish us, that it would sustain us, it would be a means of your grace to us. As we sing now, as we participate in this meal and as we pray to you and as as we leave today, God, may that simple reminder that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, may that continue to to ring true in our lives and our hearts. May we rest in that simple yet profound truth when the narratives and the stories of the world tell us that we don't measure up and remind us of our shame and our brokenness I pray that we would be quick to turn to what is the true story of forgiveness and of grace and of a new identity in Christ. So, God, we give you praise for that. We pray as we worship now, God, that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.